On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today. Do you give tips when you check out with your card at a store when they ask you, when they hand you the machine and it says, do you want a tip? What about at self-checkout sites? Self-checkouts are now asking for tips. Should we do that? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Airbnbs and whether they should be more carefully monitored. Gen Z members dumping smartphones for the old flip phone. We'll get into that. Should there be a limit on maximum heat in this city for apartments? Should there be a maximum heat bylaw? We'll get into that one. Heather Vajois is going to be in from the SPCA with her dog Reese talking about a fundraiser for the SPCA and food that is designated for kids, that is marketed to kids. Oh, they found that, guess what? Less nutritional value. We'll get into all that, all of that after this. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. When we came out of COVID, we heard lots of talk about, hey, be generous in, to people who are serving you in restaurants or wherever else. It's been a tough time. And it was a tough time. There's no question it was a tough time. So the the push was, you know, 15% prior to COVID had been the industry standard for most tips. There were times you did more, maybe occasionally you did less if someone really was a bad server, but 15% for the most part. But then it was, hey, maybe 20% is better or 25, 30% some people were saying was the now accepted number. I don't know if people were doing that. Nonetheless, tipping was being pushed. And then you probably noticed that you would go places and on the pad when you were scanning your card would ask you, would you like to give a tip? And that became awkward because at, to me anyway, because at times you would not really have had any service per se. You'd go to pick up something at a restaurant and they'd ask you for 15%. Well, should you give 15% at takeout when you don't have a waiter? Well, now they want you to do this at self-serve kiosks. Let me bring in Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst and the author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Bruce, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Look, Bruce, I get the push that we were having. Let's help the service people after COVID, after a tough time. Uh, Although, as I don't know that 30% was reasonable for most people. Nonetheless, this idea of tipping a computer kiosk at self-serve seems to have jumped the shark. This is, this is Arthur Fonzarelli in his leather jacket, jumping the shark <laughs> literally in happy days. Well, what is going on? Yeah. You know what? Um, society is out of control right now in many fronts. And this is one of them where, um, you know, tip creep has, has just become ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Um, like you said, things, you know, services where you don't even interact much with a human. And uh, it's just become unaffordable. And the irony is that we're in, you know, a massive or about to potentially go into some form of recession, right? So people are already behaving like a recession. So it just doesn't make sense to me. If I go through self-service and I do all my own scanning, should the store not be tipping me? Exactly. That You make a great point. I mean, that's why stores have set up all these self-checkouts. Anything you do that's a self-checkout or self is the company trying to save labor costs and effectively saving labor costs. So you're right. And prices aren't lowered for you no. doing it yourself. So, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense at all to me. Yeah. I mean, I look, I don't even know why, and I do at times, uh, I'm not even sure why I do the self-checkout. And I, and I honestly, I think the only time I do it 
is maybe because the line is shorter or I only have one or two items and let me just blow through and not wait in line. But as a concept, I hate the idea. And now that they're asking me to offer a tip in some places, it's making me even less likely to want to do it like this. This almost seems like it could push people the other way as they're trying to get people to do the self-checkout. It almost seems like it could push people the other way. Yeah, it's a slap in the face. I mean, it's basically telling your customers that you don't value their business and that you're trying to squeeze every single nickel out of them that's possible. So it's really an insult. If I see a company doing that, I just, I would never shop there again. I would think, you know what, this is insulting. You're insulting my intelligence and you're taking advantage of our customer uh, seller relationship and I'm out of there for next time. The really tricky part about this, Bruce, and, and I say this legitimately and I touched on it a minute ago, is... When you go to check out and you get, you know, you use your card and they hand you back the pin pad to do, and, and it says, would you like the tip? It is, it is, it, it's awkward. It's peer pressure almost. Like, you know, that when, if you have, uh, if I go pick up some food at a checkout place and there's no service to me really, but I hit zero on that, you have to hand that pin pad back and you know, they're looking at that and they're going, oh, you're a cheap bugger. You know, it, it, it almost is forcing you into doing it in a weird way. It is. For some people, they can't stand the peer pressure and they're going to give something. For me personally, I won't do it. I won't give any tip. That's not fair. Uh, I don't care if they look at me funny. I'll explain myself because they're not doing any work. I'm the one who's doing a lot of the work. I'm the one who's picking it up and no one's waiting on the tables. Yeah. So, you know, too much of servers' wages now have been pushed down to the consumer. You know, restaurant owners have to you know, have to pay a higher wage. And I don't care if the food's higher. I just got back from Europe uh, a little while ago and there's no tipping in Europe, but people are paid a living wage. And yeah, things are a little more expensive, but you know what? They've taken out this whole tip thing. And uh, I got to tell you, it feels pretty good. Well, your your point is very, very good though, that if if I'm asked to pick up, to, to, to pay a tip at a place where I've gone for food pickup, I'm not sitting at a table. It seems like they've do, they have done an awful lot more work. If I do sit at the table and the waiter or waitress has to get my food and fill my water and do all those things, but they're asking for the same amount if I just walk in and pick up my food. And we're, again, I think because of peer pressure or whatever the proper word would be for that, we, we do it anyway. It literally makes no sense. It doesn't. It makes zero sense. It doesn't make any economic sense. It's just a cash grab. And that's why I say, you know, when companies do that, I just get disgusted. I'm like, you know what? pay your own bills. Don't get me to subsidize your bills for you. You already charge me a hefty price for food right now. Anyways, I'm not paying more. You can pay, you can pay the person yourself. It's just really trying to take advantage of our customer relationship. We got to go, but do you see this going away anytime soon? I, 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 I certainly wouldn't imagine that any place is going to suddenly stop asking for this now that it's become a thing. No, I don't think it's going away. I think that everyone is out for themselves in this economy and everyone's trying to survive and gouge each other, whether it's pricing on the shelf or this kind of thing. And it's become like the Hunger Games. And uh, unfortunately, I think society has regressed. That is Bruce Winder, a retail analyst, author. Go pick up the book, Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Go pick up the book. You don't even have to sign for a tip when you buy it. Just buy the book. And, um, <laughs> Bruce, really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Could I stay in an Airbnb or should I go at all? Lots of questions. Uh, Quebec is now cracking down on illegal 
short-term rentals like Airbnb. They are trying to, when I say cracking down, have more control over making sure that places are credentialed and licensed, not licensed. I don't know if license is the right word, that they know what's going on, I, I, I guess. I want to bring in Thorben Wieditz. Uh, he's with Fair B&B. Joins me now. Thorben, thank you for doing this today. Thank you for having us. So uh, help me out here. Um, why do we want the government, and in this case, Quebec or anyone else, because other places are looking at this, I guess, why do we want the government n- overseeing Airbnb or do we, or, or do we want to have less regulation? What, what do we want out of this? Yeah, we have been following the short-term rental dynamics in North American cities and in Canadian cities since 2016. Um, when Airbnb initially started, um, there were no regulations and Airbnb evolved in a, you know, what one may call a regulatory loophole um, using housing stock as hotel inventory. Um, initially, it was just like you and I renting out our own home every once in a while on the weekends or when we were away on vacation. But very quickly, people discovered that you can actually make a lot of money mm. uh, using residential housing stock as full-time hotel inventory. Um, and what we have seen across North American cities, European cities, but also Canadian cities in the context of very tight housing markets that investors and speculators bought up, leased up, or otherwise acquired dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds of housing units and turned them into hotel suites. Now, those hotel suites are absentee landlord run by design because they are managed through a platform. Uh, And often in residential neighborhoods that were planned, zoned and inhabited by folks that want to live there full time. So and because of that, um, it created a lot of problems. It removed housing stock from a very tight housing market, but it also introduced, you know, party houses and nuisance and, and, and issues into residential neighborhoods and condo buildings. So, you know, the platform itself, it showed was not able to regulate itself and self regulate through like, you know, a review system, for example, that rates uh, hosts and guests. Um, and um, so at some point, you know, governments began to to take a very close look at you know, what is happening in our housing market mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what is happening with housing stock that is being converted into Airbnbs. And then we have always these issues with, you know, stuff happens, um, you know, folks are... Right. And we hear those stories. Stock. Yeah. We hear those yeah, stories yeah. every once in a while. There's one in the news of some, we've had it here in, in Hamilton of, uh, of places that, right. that have been yes, crazy. Yeah. So, and, and in Montreal, um, you know, you also had obviously uh, this very tragic fire in a a uh, large building um, that killed seven people. And that building was not even, was in an area that was not allowed to have any short-term rentals at all. So, um, you know, I think that served as a wake-up call for folks in Quebec to say, we need to make sure that anything that's being offered to tourists, visitors, uh, guests inside our residential neighborhoods is safe. Um, and it doesn't remove housing stock. So I think that's sort of the impetus, uh, behind the, the regulatory push. And, uh, in Quebec. and with what you're describing, there are some things, some reasons why this seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, whether it's for what you just described for safety or for the housing stock, or even so that if I do rent an Airbnb, I know that when I get there, the place exists, that kind of thing. So I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, a consumer who's left high and dry with Quebec right now. 
do you pay for a license or is it merely that you have to register and let them know that you exist? Oh, that's a very good question. I'm not quite sure. Um, knowing what I know um, about places like including Hamilton, um, you know, folks pay for a uh, pay a permit fee. It tends to be uh, fairly low for people that rent out their own places. And um, I would assume that this is the case in, in Quebec as well. I'm sure that that uh, the platforms will have to also pay for a platform registration in the province of Quebec. Um, but usually the way it works is that platforms pay a fairly large fee to be able to operate as a business in the jurisdiction. Um, and then people that rent out their homes pay a one-time permit fee um, to offset some of the administrative costs and do, you know, as a cost recovery uh, initiative to help um, administer the program and enforce the program. Yeah, and, and in Quebec, and this is... Um what they're proposing right now, it's, it's like, if you were to rent a place out and you're not registered, they're not fooling around. It's a hundred thousand dollar fine for each illegal rental listing. Uh, I, I mean, that, that, that sounds enormous for this kind of thing is, is that simply an indication of how serious they're taking? Or is this because, you know, we, we always want, governments are always short on money and there's an opportunity to make money here. Is this because it's an easy way to make money because there's so many illegal listings, do we know? Or is this just preventable, preventative? No, I think uh, the $100,000, that's a fine for the platforms like Airbnb, which we all know is a not, not for the whole owner. platform. Okay, not for the owner. Uh, the owner will also be fined, but I don't think uh, up to $100,000. Okay, okay. um, but the idea behind this in Quebec is a, a very smart one, actually, because it's very difficult for any government, as we all know, to um, uh, do efficient enforcement, particularly if you have to track down uh, tens of thousands of individuals who rent out their places on platforms that do not share the data with anyone. So, you know, you really have to engage in a, in a game of whack-a-mole uh, if sure. you want to find people that rent places illegally. What they have done in Quebec is that everyone, every listing on a platform like Airbnb needs to have a valid uh, certification number. And listings have to verify every property um, to ensure that, that what they advertise on their platforms is indeed legal and safe. So, and if there is a property that is advertised on a platform like Airbnb, it's the platform that can be fined I see, I um, see. up to $100,000 per listing, which is a way of holding these platforms accountable for the content that they advertise and profit from. And I think that's a very important uh, uh, differentiation between some other regulatory context where platforms are left off the hook and platforms say, well, we encourage everyone to follow the rules, but we can't possibly... Uh, you know, make sure that everything sure. on our platforms is legal, like there's too many listings. But in fact, platforms are very well equipped because they are tech companies uh, after all, and they can double check the verification and certification numbers uh, with the provincial database to ensure that um, any property that they receive to be listed um, has a valid verification number, just as it would require a valid credit card uh, number, for example. So it's a very simple step, but a very efficient step because it puts the platforms into position to uh, police its content, which um, is a much more effective way than 
relying on governments chasing down tens of thousands of individuals Absolutely. and their properties. Thorben Wieditz uh, from Fair B&B. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thank you for this. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Seems that a bunch of people, younger people in Canada, have decided that smartphones are not all that they're cracked up to be. I know that I'm, well, I feel like I should be in some sort of 12-step meeting. I'm Scott. I'm addicted to my cell phone. I know that, my smartphone. I, 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 I have a problem with it. But they are apparently, a lot of younger people, less so, and stepping away from smartphones, going back to what you used to see on Breaking Bad, minus all the meth, we hope. Uh, Carmi Levy is a tech analyst and a journalist, joins us now. Carmi, how are you this morning? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm great, Scott. I mean, as you, but as you're talking about, you know, I'm Scott and I have a problem, I'll say exactly the same thing about me because last night as I was updating my calendar for this morning and for this talk, I'm like, I, I'm thinking I'm supposed to be going to bed. I'm not supposed to be using my phone before bed. I do this every night. I've got a problem. And I, <laughs> yeah. I know I'm not the only one. It's no, addictive. no. And so for that reason, when I look at this these stories of younger people, Gen Z people deciding I'm going to get rid of a smartphone or never have a smartphone, going to go back to the flip phones or the much simpler phones. I kind of say, Hey, good on you for doing that because you know, it's, it's a whole lot less time wasted, but is, do you think that's why they're doing it? Is there something else going on here? Well, I think there are a number of factors and I think certainly the whole concept of digital detox is, is, is playing large uh, among a lot of people, especially Gen Z, because they've grown up with it. And I think they're starting to realize it's harmful to them. Uh, and so, you know, certainly it, it affects your ability to go to sleep. If you're looking at a screen, that blue light is uh, really terrible for your melatonin production. It, it, it hinders your ability to fall asleep. Um, and, and, and then beyond that, it's just that even during the day, it's constantly pinging you. Those notifications are constantly going off. You're responding to them like Pavlov's dog. That ha- that takes a mental toll. It affects your mental health. It affects your ability to focus on the real world around you, to get work done, to focus in class. Uh, and so I think we're starting to see kind of a reaction to it and the right kind of reaction. It's like maybe this isn't so good for us. Um, and, and maybe we should balance things off. Maybe my life doesn't need to be dictated by a device that I keep in my pocket that's never more than an arm's length away mm. from me. Maybe I should disconnect a little bit. It'll probably be good for my mental health. And I and I think that's fair. I I can't afford it uh, because of the work that I do. I you know I'd love to get a flip phone, but uh, you know I but I think you know recognizing even if you have a smartphone uh, that it is potentially damaging. That there is a two sides to it. I think it's a really good start. And I think that the fact that we are seeing a rise in popularity of these old phones that only do voice calls and maybe some texting, uh, I think is really healthy for us. It means that there's a whole broad spectrum of, of experience and we recognize technology maybe isn't always, isn't the answer that we thought it was. And I think everything you just said makes a whole ton of sense. And I think you're probably right on all those points. There is one other thing though that I do wonder about, and that is, if you start thinking back, it seems like, you know, sort of 25 years mm-hmm. is the nostalgia era. Back in the seventies, we were all, all the TV shows, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, all the, they were like, we were looking back to the fifties and then in the eighties, it was to the sixties probably. 
25 years is about the flip phone era. Now, I wonder how much of this is what you just said, which I'm sure is a factor, mm-hmm. but also kind of, it's a cool nostalgic thing to have that rather than a smartphone. Oh yeah. Nostalgia marketing is very definitely a thing. And I, and I, and I think beyond just this particular technology, you're absolutely right. That explains why vinyl records. Yeah. Back. That explains why people still build music collections. It explains why my kids are listening to Nirvana, even though they weren't alive when Nirvana came out. Like that's, you know, I, I, and, and I think that it, I think we look back at things that maybe weren't even popular while we were alive, but we recognize there's something in them to, you know, there's, you know, what we enjoy today is built on what came 20, 25 years ago. And it seems to work in that generational cycle. So I think there's certainly, you know, that, that certainly explains part of it. Um, and, and Nokia, which of course was the, you know, the top dog when it came to phones back in that era, they're leaning hard into it. A lot of their advertising for their old phones, uh, for the, their new phones that look old, um, actually is, is based on nostalgia. Their YouTube ads are, are heavily uh, nostalgic and they use imagery from the aughts uh, to get us to buy into that tech. So, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely think that's part of it. I think there's an appeal to it. You know, you pull out a flip phone at a party Everyone stops. <laughs> well, uh, you pull out a smartphone, no one cares anymore. But the flip phone, absolutely. If you pull out a flip phone at a party, there's one of two things they're thinking. Uh, honestly, you, either you're really nostalgic and that's really cool, or you're a dealer. It's it's going to be <laughs> one of the two things. I, I do wonder though. These old flip phones, the old new flip phones, though, are they the ones that are being produced? And honestly, I haven't gone and looked this up. You'll know this. Are they truly? the same as the old flip phones or do they look like flip phones? Cause they are, but they have new technology in them. That's much more closer to the smartphone. Well, here's the thing. If you have an old flip phone sitting in a drawer that you know, has been gathering dust for 20 years, you try to turn it on. It will not work because the, the networks, the digital networks that they worked on the, the, the cell networks have been turned off because they're such old technology. So the, the, the new flip phones that we see, the new feature phones, dumb phones, whatever we want to call them, um, they look like the phones that we bought 20, 25 years ago, but in reality, the insides are all different, much better battery life. They work on current networks. Uh, you'll probably get better sound quality too. It won't drop out as much. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nostalgia, but it can only take you so far. It's the same reason why if you buy a turntable today, uh, the guts of it are pretty sophisticated. It'll connect to your USB port. Your old turntable couldn't do that. Your old right. phone couldn't do a lot of things that the new phones do as well even if they look nostalgic. Carmi Levy, uh, technology analyst and journalist. Love having you on. Thanks for doing this, Carmi. Great being here, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are a number of tenants groups who are pushing for a new rule within the city to have a maximum heat bylaw. That if the temperatures get up to a certain sweltering level, during a heat wave that people who live in their apartments or wherever else should be looked after by not broiling in that unit. want to bring in um, Stuart Klazinga from Acorn Hamilton who joins us now. Stuart, thank you for doing this today. Hi, uh, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate you doing this. How, how would you like to see something like this work? What, in your mind, what would be the, the bylaw? How would this work? What would we be looking at? So um, the Residential Tenancies Act, uh, provincial legislation, and Hamilton's own uh, heat bylaw already have provisions in place for uh, requiring heat be available 
in the winter. Uh, so uh, they both state that uh, unit has to be at least 20 degrees Celsius in all habitable spaces. Uh, so really, we're just looking to um, copy most of that language uh, and just instead of uh, above at or above 20 degrees in habitable spaces, just change it to at or below 26 degrees in all habitable spaces. And uh, the reason for 26 degrees is because uh, that's that's sort of the threshold where, um, you know, vulnerable people's health can really start to uh, be affected by uh, the heat and it can really uh, start to have a negative effect on uh, on their health and and this like the the seriousness of this is just as great as it is with cold like people can die as a result so um, it is something that we believe is is important to protect people from and who would um would this be for every Ideally, would this be for every apartment unit in the city or would it be only for certain ones with tenants that have certain challenges or what, again, what's the, what would be the vision for the idea? So in the end, every rental, uh, across the city, be it an apartment, be it a townhouse, be it a, uh, single detached home that's being rented, um, you know, they would all be covered just as, uh, those other legislations I mentioned, they, they cover all rentals for heat. Um, now, whether or not everything uh, comes in all at once or is phased in gradually, that has yet to be seen because certainly Hamilton has a very large tenant uh, population. So um, having something like this come in, there will be logistical issues that will have to be contended with, uh, such as the uh, supply of, of, of these units, uh, the supply of the manufacturing, the supply of installers, the supply of technicians, all those types of things. Um, so it's not going to happen overnight just because it can't, but uh, how long it takes to implement um you know, we're still waiting to to flesh all those details out entirely. One of the challenges, I would assume, we all know what housing costs in the city already. It's a, it's an expensive place mm-hmm. to live, an expensive place to rent. Are you concerned that if you do this, that the people who rent the apartments are simply going to pass along the costs to the tenants, and the tenants are ultimately going to end up paying for this? So uh, the Residential Tenancies Act, um, a lot of Hamilton's rentals are still rent-controlled. Uh, new builds uh, from the last uh, couple of years are not. So those landlords would be able to, um, you know, arbitrarily increase the price uh, of rent once a year. Um, I really don't know if there's anything that can be done uh, in those cases, uh, but as far as anything older than a few years, those rents can only increase by a certain percentage each year. And so we're not worried about those uh, units being affected by the price. And as for the cost of rentals overall, I mean, we've seen this skyrocketing already without um, without uh, any protection provisions being added to what to what's already there so um i mean the rent is going to increase whether whether landlords are being required to protect their their tenants or not so do we do we know if this kind of thing exists in other cities 
this protection? In Canada, no. Uh, there is a municipality in uh, Ontario, I believe it's Mississauga, but I could be wrong, that uh, has... Um, uh, it it has yeah so Mississauga has I I just checked my notes Mississauga does have a maximum heat bylaw uh, that requires 26 degrees but it only applies uh, in units where air conditioning is already present so like a lease already includes air conditioning as one of the amenities um, so otherwise in Canada we would be the first uh, but we are also one of the most affected cities uh, of this kind of extreme heat because of our heat dome and and, and stuff like that. A lot of parking lots and uh, a lot of humidity because of uh, where we are geographically. Uh, The only uh, city that was uh, said to be more affected by this is going to be Windsor. Um, So Hamilton is definitely a good starting point for such a bylaw to uh, to be brought in. There are a few jurisdictions in, in the United States that have bylaws similar to what uh, we want. And in those places, uh, we've seen that the landlords initially complain about it, but eventually they just go along with it. And now it's just part of the routine. Stuart, one of the, uh, and I mean, maybe we're getting too specific here, but how would this be enforced? And and it sounds like that's maybe a stupid question because you said, okay, it's 26 degrees. If it's 26 degrees and you don't have air conditioning, but, you know, I'll often go on my app on my iPhone. We were just talking about iPhones a moment ago, and it'll say city of Hamilton temperature is whatever, but different parts of the city or, you know, someone's apartment may be facing the sun. So their apartment is actually a lot hotter than 26 degrees. How do you, how -hmm. do you enforce this kind of thing? Well, so uh, it it would be the exact same as the heat uh, that's required in, in the winter. Uh, both of the legislations I mentioned earlier have uh, a very um, specific rubric as to how temperature is uh, tested and, and determined. Uh, so, so basically, uh, the temperature needs to be um, what that, like, um, sorry, the, the temperature needs to be at the temperature required by the law, I believe it's one meter up from the ground and uh, one meter out from the wall in any habitable space. So, uh, and, and I get, and I get, no, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be ridiculous here. I really am not. I'm wondering, is it then, is it measured by the city? If the city yes. weather yeah. has a 26, Hamilton was 26 degrees today. Does that count as the measurable or does it have to be in each unit that you would have to measure, I guess is what I'm getting at. No, it's, it, it it's the inside temperature not not the outside temperature so um you know if i think that my unit is too cold in the winter i leave a digital thermometer on my desk okay, for a while okay. and i find oh, okay the last two days it's been 18 degrees i call the city they send someone over with uh temperature measuring equipment they measure in the appropriate places they determine yep you're right it is too cold in here they send a letter to the landlord saying hey you have to ensure that this unit uh, that you own is um Kept uh, at a suitable temperature. That's okay. That that makes sense. So it's so it's each individual you would record it yourself as opposed to just a uh, a citywide. All right. It, look, it's a fascinating topic. I wish we had a lot more time to talk about it. Um, Stuart Klazinga from Acorn Hamilton. Thank you so much for taking time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We get to have 
people in the studio occasionally, now that COVID is done especially. Uh, but I rarely get to bring a dog into the studio. But today, um, Heather Vaugeois and Reese from the Hamilton Burlington SPCA are in studio. Heather, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Why? Us. Now, well, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Uh, by the way, what kind of dog is Reese? Reese is, well, classified as a mix because she was actually a shelter dog. Um, my guess is she's a French bulldog. She is incredibly cute. And after <laughs> about 30 seconds of being nervous now, she is very, very friendly. Yeah, she'll chill out now. <laughs> she, will, <laughs> yeah. she will chill. Yeah, no, no. She is, she is a great dog. And now, is she up for adoption? No. Um, Reese's story, uh, she came into the shelter in December. Um, and I walked by the kennel and saw her. Um, and I just thought, oh, she's, you know, Christmas time. We wanted to, like, she had just been surrendered like 15 minutes before. So I offered to go on the foster program list um, and to foster her through December because we weren't doing spay neuters until the new year. So she landed at our house and now she, I'm what you refer to as a foster fail. So she is now living with us and she's the final piece to our family. So it's ex- excellent to have her. I would think that 15 minutes has to be the <laughs> shortest time a dog has ever been without a home. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and I can't imagine anyone's ever been quicker. No one's ever been picked up at the front counter while they're being checked in. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was just a fa- um, a fluke. I don't normally make it into the main building. I'm usually working in the note building. And I just saw her and she still actually had her harness on. So I just asked the question and she was very sweet and very tiny. So I thought, oh, like, what's her story? And now her story is she's um, ours. Now she, she's, here. she's part of our family. Uh, this is all part. The, the reason you're here and the reason Reese is here is because you guys are the, the SPCA and Domino's Pizza are teaming up on a fundraiser to uh, to help with the SPCA. Yes, we're very excited. Uh, tomorrow, May 17th, um, all day, uh, Domino's across Hamilton, Ancaster, and a number in Burlington have offered to participate in a dough raiser, which means that every large pizza, um, there's four different kinds, but four pe- uh, those four pizzas, $5 from each purchase goes directly back to the SPCA. So wow. we're very excited. Yeah. Is this is this something new or has this been done? New to us. Okay. New to us. I think Domino's, this is something that they do ongoing for uh, not-for-profits and for school groups. Um, but we were lucky enough to have a relationship with um, one of the owners that owns the Ancaster one. And she was amazing. Um, she actually rolled it out with all of the other Domino's no and intended. got everybody. Yeah. No, I didn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> and she actually um, encouraged everyone to participate. And there's a lot of dog lovers and cat lovers and just animal lovers in the um, area. So they thought it would be a great way to help support us. And what does the money go to? I'm um, not the pizza money. What does the money go towards with you guys? If it goes to us, it will go to our general operations. Um, on any given day, um, the SPCA supports over 200 animals in our care, in our community, in our cat colonies. So this these funds will help support us to offset those costs, um, basically helping us help more. I can't, so you have 200... Pets in so the not building. on site. So when I refer to two, any given day, two hundred animals, we um, we have a lot of uh, ways that we support the community. Um, we have a f- full house right now. We just received twenty one puppies that we got in the other day. Um, well, mixed age, but mostly uh, a lot of young. <laughs> puppies. Um, so those come in, they, they came in. So we have what we refer to as our shelter animals that are in the kennels. Um, we work with community cat givers. So in the community, we have people who take care of cat colonies. So we support them. We have a 
Companion Animal Hospital. So on site, um, we actually have, uh, we're like a five star. We actually, we're able to support a lot of different animals. Um, they come in for uh, spay neuter. All of our animals that are come to us are spay neutered, taken care of, vaccinated, checked for all kinds of different um, situations that they might be living with. And then we also support in through our outreach. So what we noticed through the pandemic um, was the need uh, to grow our programs, not necessarily just on site, but to get them far reaching into the community. And so we have our uh, pet wellness clinics with the idea the, is to support 100 um, percent, but recognizing that there are a lot of people, a lot of pet families that can't afford the care that they need. Um, there's issues with actually being able to find veterinarians because there's a shortage. Mm. Uh, so we're we're offsetting that. Things. We're helping. Yeah. So that's the on. 200 when we talk about the 200. Yeah. You can stick around for a minute. Absolutely. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Heather from SPCA of Hamilton Burlington uh, talking about the dough raiser with Domino's Pizza. Uh, where you can donate to the SPCA simply by eating pizza. That, that seems like a, a reasonably okay trade-off. Yeah, uh, Heather, just before the break, you had mentioned that 20, you had 21 dogs that had just come into the SPCA. How, what happens that 21 dogs en masse oh. suddenly arrive? So um, to, to answer correct, I can answer... We uh, work with other organizations. So this was actually um, an intake from another Northern Ontario um, Humane Society or SPCA. Um, we have, obviously, if we bring 21 animals into this area, they'll have a better sh- chance okay. um, of being adopted out. Plus, uh, plus, with, as I mentioned earlier, our companion animal hospital, we have the services that we can provide to those animals. Okay, because um, I was right thinking there. when you said 21 dogs, that <laughs> some, someone had had a house with these in or well, something That does else, happen, but <laughs> this, this, this in this case. case, we were helping out another shelter. I, is there still, um, we've heard a lot about post-COVID of people who adopted pets because they were home and they wanted companionship and then post-COVID they discover they're not really great pet owners. Is that still a thing? So there, there is some truth to that, I'll, to be honest. Um, in the spring, though, however, this is when we see a large intake of animals. Um, we see a lot of kittens, uh, which are like unwanted or un, like litters that come in through um, cat colonies. We also see puppies. So we do see a lot of animals that come in um, on a regular basis. I, you know, to measure this, I started in COVID at the SPCA, so it was quiet. Um, now it is a steady flow of animals that come into our into our shelter. Um, and we do have people who bring in an animal for whatever reason, they're unable to care for them, um, be that medical um, with the animal, medical for them, um, moving. Uh, we try not to judge um, because at the end of the day, as soon as an animal lands on our uh, on our steps, it's in the best place because we know that we will give it another chance, we'll get it healthy, and we will fi- help find a home for it. Um, what would, I mean, what would be the common, you mentioned a couple, but the common reason somebody might drop a dog, especially a dog, a drop a dog off at SPCA, is it, you, you mentioned health, either theirs or the animals, is it, wh- what other reasons would people have for dropping off? They just don't want it or they've had puppies or what? So some people, I, th- I think, I think there's truth in all of those pieces, but I think that some people take on a puppy um, or, a, or a kitten and then with being at home during COVID, you you had that opportunity to be there. Um, then what happens is everyone's rolling back out to work. Yeah. Um, and then that's just the inability to care properly for an animal. So the decisions that these people are making um, are coming from a good place. Um, so there's that. <laughs> uh, however, uh, 
all kinds of reasons. Like, I don't think I could actually answer that fairly. Um, I, I, again, I don't work in animal care. I work in the other building in, in administration, uh, the stories that are shared with us. But at the end of the day, um, like as I said, when people make the decision that they're moving or they, you know, they, you know, some people had to move back in with family, they just don't have the space or the room for an animal in their life. Um, that That's probably why they bring it to us. And, and again, speaking to the medical piece, um, sometimes animals come to us that are very sick. This is actually why um, we're rolling out with the outreach programs because those are preventative. So we don't want people to come to us because an animal's sick and they can't afford food or medication. Mm -hmm. So by us going into the community and supporting those animals and those pet families prior to that, we're trying to eliminate that situation so that people don't have to feel desperate um, to release their animal to us. Because ideally, we want to keep people and pets together, the mental health piece, everything. That's their family. Your story, uh, and if people were listening just before we had a break, uh, your story about finding Reese, who's sitting beside you now, (laughs) who's, I think, gone to sleep on us here. Um, But, uh, I mean, is that, that's obviously the goal. Would you prefer that people adopt the animals from SPCA rather than going to a breeder or something else because they're already there and they need someone to take them? What I've learned in the last two years is that there are always animals at the SPCA or Humane Society. So my attitude now is why would you not try to give those animals a second chance? These are beautiful animals and they just want to be loved and they just want to feel secure. Um, so yeah, I would say, I, you know what, to everybody, people will want a certain breed. Um, I would never, I can't discourage that. That's not my, that's not my yeah. place. But what I can say is that we always have animals um, up for adoption. We have these beautiful animals. We're really lucky. Um, and, and, you know, that's the other thing, too, when we were referring to me being a foster fail with Reese, um, we're actually rolling out a massive foster program, hoping that people will open up their doors to help these animals um, through their homes um, to get ready to be um, adopted out. Tomorrow is the dough raiser with Domino's and with the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. You will be buying how many pizzas? Oh, I have three boys, so I'm going to be probably <laughs> buying about nine. Yeah, <laughs> only nine? Yeah, only well, maybe more. <laughs> but at least I don't have to cook. I'm looking at it like, wow, this is beautiful. I don't have to make dinner. I don't have to think about it. Um, and then all the funds will be going to that. Heather Vaugeois <laughs> and uh, and Reese, who I can no longer see, but is, uh, is very relaxed now and... Um, is where I think I may be soon, shortly after nine when the show is done. Just right on the floor. Right on the floor. <laughs> Heather, thanks for coming in and doing this. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new study is probably has probably come up with a conclusion that you may already know. A new study has found that food marketed to kids is lower in nutritional value less healthy, and is far more processed. When I say that, probably you're saying, well, yeah, the cereals and candy and pop and ice cream. Of course that makes sense. However, we now have this study that points to the reality of this. This is, in fact, the case. I want to bring in Kate Park, who's a registered dietitian, a diabetes educator, and Hamilton Family Health, uh, a member of the Hamilton Family Health team. Uh, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here, Scott. As I say, I can't say I'm shocked by this. I would have expected this if I'd actually sat down and thought about it. Should we be surprised by this or has this been going on for a long time? No, this isn't 
terribly surprising, honestly. I think a lot of people suspected. And truthfully, there have been other studies in other countries that have found similar results. It's not just a Canada-based thing. It's a worldwide issue that many foods marketed to children often are of poor nutritional quality. And I, I mean, I say the, the first thing when I think of, okay, just a second, what, what kind of foods are marketed to children? The first thing that comes to mind is cereal, like Saturday morning. Well, in my generation, my time, Saturday morning cartoons, all we saw was a flurry of commercials for, for cereals. That one right there, there, there's probably a good example of the stuff we're talking about. Yes, that's a great example, as well as a lot of the foods that you'll find down the snack aisle that are targeted at children as well, some portable yogurt drinks, things like that. Um, there, There is a lot of marketing focus specifically around children when it comes to those products. Do you believe the, uh, speaking of that on the snack aisle, do you believe the stories that grocery stores put those kind of foods at children's eye height so that the kids will see those when they're shopping with mom or dad? Oh, yes. There's a billion-dollar industry when it comes to food psychology and grocery stores, and placement matters, even to adults. Uh, they, it, Some companies will actually pay a premium to have their food at eye level for adults, but kids, it's just the same. In fact, if you look at some of the packaging with cartoon characters on it, you might notice that their eye uh the eyes of the characters are actually focused in such a position that they'll lock eyes with a child as they're walking by, which draws them even more to the product. So next time you're in there, just take a look at where the cartoons are staring. <laughs> okay. So this may not be healthy, but my, you got to give a nod to the uh, marketing people. That's kind of genius. Oh, they're brilliant. They know exactly what they're doing. And the truth is that these companies understand that if they can get children to uh, buy uh, buy into a brand at a young age, they become brand loyal as adults. So of course they want to market to children. It makes perfect sense from a business perspective. Is this though, and this it may sound like a stupid question, so there's going to be a follow-up that may establish why I'm asking this, but is this a problem? Can be. I certainly can. It can be. I think uh, the message that we get from the other side is, well, you know, freedom of choice and, you know, it should be the parents' decisions, uh, what what they get for their children, um, you know, and so we need to leave the market free and open. But the truth is, it's very difficult as a parent when your child is constantly being exposed to marketing. And as their brains are developing, uh, they're not going to be able to notice that they're being manipulated by marketing. I mean, goodness, even adults don't always notice they're being mm. manipulated by marketing. And so putting some safety measures in place to make healthier choices easier, um, I think is a compelling argument because we do know that long-term high intake of ultra-processed foods, high intakes of sugars and processed fats can lead to chronic disease, which puts a burden on our healthcare system. See, you just answered the follow-up question before I asked <laughs> it, which was, is this not ultimately the responsibility of parents to say, fine, you can have that bowl of whatever cereal you want but you're also going to have X, X, and X and some fruit and some other things so that, yeah, it's part of the whole, well, like they say, like they say on the, on the, on the cereal commercials, part of a balanced diet. I think that it's important for parents to have the, the choice to raise their children however they want or so choose. But I do think that some transparency around what's really in our food and our food system so that parents can make informed decisions is really important. And that we don't put these health halos around these products um, that may actually be quite a lot more processed. Um, and also just reducing the advertising towards children, I think is helpful. Because um, it's, I mean, let's face it, it's very difficult to deal with a child that's having a tantrum because 
because they want a product that is the hip or latest thing. Mm. Um, so again, taking some of the pressure off the parents, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, and and your point is well made because I mean, look, there's a there's a local coffee, well, not local, a national coffee chain that is, you know, I started to see the ads for their summertime drinks and there's a new flavor and it's like, I've had mango before. I know what mango tastes like. And yet you're sort of going, oh, I should try the mango to see if it's really tasty. So, I mean, I get the idea behind the advertising, uh, but, and I also get the, the, the funny part about, and using cereals again, I don't know why I keep coming back to cereals. It's sort of the <laughs> children's thing, but I've always found it funny when the box will say something like a source of vitamin D. Well, yeah, but so is almost everything else. Like it's, it's funny how it's been worked to try and make it sound like, Hey, it's okay to have this. It's got 14 cups of sugar, but it's a source of vitamin D. Yeah. And that marketing and those very specific nutritional claims on products can potentially mislead an uninformed consumer to think something Mm. is healthier than it is. One of my favorite examples is snack foods that would say they were cholesterol free, but unless there was animal products in the first place, it never had cholesterol to begin with. So there's a lot of products out there claiming they have no cholesterol, but they didn't in the first place. So again, little things like that can lead a consumer to thinking something's healthier than it actually is. We got to run. I always think of that episode of Seinfeld when they're eating the frozen yogurt only to discover that, oh, there was fat in the frozen yogurt after all. So we, we <laughs> Kate Park, I uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.